As long as violence and cruelty is hidden, privatized, made more discreet, it can go on in a civilized society. In many ways, it's even more likely. Welcome to New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. I did your dirty work. You've probably heard the phrase, maybe you've said it, but my guest today argues that dirty work isn't just an individual phenomenon. In his new book, Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America, AL Press writes there are entire areas of life we've delegated to dirty workers, functions we've decided are necessary, but that we want to keep hidden apart from us. Take the people, generally underpaid, often undocumented, working on the kill floors in slaughterhouses. If you're a meat eater, their work is essential. But holding the shrink-wrapped final product of that work, you likely don't think too much about how it came to be. And that, says AL Press, is by design. Slaughterhouses are kept out of the public eye. Too much transparency would threaten our status as quote-unquote good people. And that's really the question of dirty work. What's the relationship of that work to the good people who rely upon it? To take an example Press explores that's more relevant to this show, Consider our collective response to people with mental illness. We've decided, tacitly, to turn prisons and jails into the largest mental health institutions in the country, and we then underfund treatment and make it subservient to the perceived security needs of these institutions. This makes the people trying to offer that treatment dirty workers, not because their work isn't noble, but because we've put them in a situation, again, largely hidden from view, where it's impossible to practice ethical care. And that's the other defining feature of dirty work. It causes harm not only to the people it's practiced on, but morally to the people doing the work, acting in our name. On that note, a warning, there are in here a couple of pretty intense descriptions of violence, so please take care listening. A.L. Press is an author and journalist. You can see his byline in places like The New Yorker and The New York Times. And I started the conversation by asking him about the origin of his particular use of dirty work. Dirty work, I think when people see the book or hear about it, they probably think of the colloquial expression and think of an unpleasant job uh, or task. But my definition in the book, which, as you noted, is drawing on, on a sociological literature about dirty work, really emphasizes activities that are morally troubling and crucially morally troubling, but that society depends on and tacitly condones. But just to flesh out what that sociological literature is, the central figure, the book, my book opens with a figure named Ed, Everett Hughes. He was a very influential sociologist at the University of Chicago. And shortly after World War II, Hughes goes to Germany and he's very curious to bring up with people he'd met before the war, what they would say when he brought up the Nazi regime. And generally what he found was that no one wanted to talk about it at all. Um, I found his diaries and you know, he was struck by people not wanting to talk about it. But when he would bring it up, and especially with the people he knew who were more cosmopolitan, liberal people, these were not you know, avid supporters of the Nazi party. Right. These, um, were, the, these were the good people. Yes. And he, dub, and he dubs them in his diary and then later in an essay, good people, and sort of in, in air quotes there. But um, so he's at the house of an architect one night and he says, 
what do you make of the comportment of German soldiers during the war? And this conversation unfolds about the crimes of the Nazis. And the architect who's hosting this tea says exactly what you'd expect, which is, you know, I'm ashamed for my people whenever someone brings this up. You know, it was a terrible pressure. Of course, we had no choice. We had to go along with what the Nazis said, but, but I'm ashamed of it. But then he proceeds to say, you know, the Jews, they were a problem. They were taking all the good jobs. They were gathering in these filthy ghettos. And Hughes keeps hearing this on the one hand, on the other hand, kind of reply from these people he knew, these cosmopolitan residents of Frankfurt. And he publishes an essay called Good People and Dirty Work. And what he posits in that essay is that the dirty work under the Nazi regime was not a sort of rogue operation that took place without the knowledge or consent of these quote unquote good people. The people who carried it out were agents of the good people. They were agents of society acting with some sort of what he called an unconscious mandate. And, you know, it's important to stress, he's not saying they supported the Nazi program. He's saying a lot of people didn't ask many questions because they were at some level not displeased, right? Oh, the Jews are being rounded up and taken away. So be it. And to me, the most interesting thing about this essay is that Hughes then proceeds to say that it's not just Germany. Dirty work exists in all societies. And in all societies, we have to think about what good people are willing to countenance, to have done in their name, to grant a kind of tacit mandate, and to just ignore and kind of push into the shadows. And the more I thought about it, the more it occurred to me that this concept, this framework is actually more applicable to a society like ours, to the United States today, than it is to a place like Nazi Germany, uh, or for that matter, contemporary North Korea. Because in, in North Korea today, uh, or under the Nazis, it kind of didn't matter what the quote unquote good people thought, right? The regime seized power, they eliminated their, their opponents, they made it clear they would jail you if, you if you criticize the state. But in a democracy, what the good people, what's, what the rest of society thinks and tolerates and condones matters a lot. In fact, Everett Hughes made that clear himself. He was someone who was a, a, a very attuned to racism in America. He had a father who had been targeted by the Ku Klux Klan. And so he, raised, he, he says, you know, what about all the violence we tolerate? What about the racism we tolerate? What about the, the lynchings and the police torture we to tolerate? This is all in the 1960s, by the way. But it just jumped off the page when I read it and thought, well, look at the society we have today. And, and let's look at some of the dirty work that gets tolerated here. And that's the point of departure for the book. So we're going to talk about prisons and, and jails in a minute. But if we look, say, at like meat processing plants, um, I mean, really instantiates your argument that dirty work is work that causes substantial harm to people, to animals and or the environment. But dirty work is also work that is morally injurious to the people who are doing it themselves, that the good people we are insulated from, right? Yeah. I mean, if you, if you think about slaughterhouses in America, it's a, it's a great example of, let's say your position is, well, people eat meat. As a society, I'm fine with that. I'm fine being a consumer of of, of this cleanly packaged product, right? That is exactly. There's, there's, there's the, let's say your position is 
this is fine to, to, to eat meat, to raise animals for slaughter and so forth. Well, even if that's your position, it's notable that slaughterhouses are among the most remote, secretive, and invisible institutions in American society. We don't see them on the nightly news. We don't see them on television. In fact, I cite at one point uh, an attempt by someone uh, to expose what happened in the slaughterhouse to 2020. And they, they told uh, this person, uh, it's too violent. We can't, show, we can't show that kind of gore. But why is it not seen? Well, it's not seen because consumers might find it disturbing. And I think that's true even of people who have uh, no problem with the idea of eating meat. It's the scale of the system. It's the speed and cru- the, cr- the level of cruelty to the animals, the level of exploitation of the workforce in these plants. You know, I go to le- considerable lengths to detail that at a poultry slaughterhouse in Texas, where the workers are not just suffering physical injuries because the line speeds are so fast that they are experiencing these repetitive strain injuries, but they're also suffering these blows to their dignity. The female workers at the plant are not allowed to go to the bathroom because this will slow down production. And as a consequence of this, I I interview uh, women who worked at that plant and would go to work with a sanitary napkin or with an extra pair of pants to continue working and, and go to the bathroom while they were working. And just thinking about that as something that's happening in 21st century America tells you something about, I think it is an example of dirty work. And I think it is an example of, as you said, something that causes harm both to the people who do it, and then, of course, to others, to external, you know, in this case, the animals, the environment, um, all kinds of ways we can measure that harm. So then how does this injurious, dirty work get parceled out? You know, inequality is right there in the, in the subtitle of your book. Who, who is doing this dirty work with the consent of uh, the tacit consent of the rest of us? We can't talk about and understand how dirty work in America is organized and actually how it continues to be tolerated without talking about class, without talking about race, without talking about inequality, because this work is delegated to people with relatively little power in our society, with fewer choices and opportunities. If we think of where slaughterhouses are located and then think about who works in them, this had been a job in mid 20th century America where the average wage was actually higher than the typical factory. And that was because unions fought very hard to uh, improve conditions and raise wages. Uh, Well, in the late 60s, early 70s, there's a new model that arises, and it's, it's, it's the low wage strategy. And the industry starts intentionally recruiting immigrants to work in slaughterhouses. They locate these slaughterhouses in more remote rural areas nearer to the farms, but also you know, away from urban centers, away from the media, um, and really just kind of create these silos that that very few people who consume meat ever go near or see. So the people that I interviewed at that poultry plant I just mentioned, a lot of them were undocumented. And of course, one of the advantages for the industry in this is that they don't speak back about these conditions as often because they are afraid. Uh, They may not have the language skills. They certainly don't, from what my experience in interviewing them, have have a detailed knowledge of what their labor rights are, even even if they have rights. Uh, They do, by the way, but, um, but they often don't know it. 
And then, uh, of course, there's the fear not just of getting fired and being replaced, but also of being deported, which happened quite a bit during the Trump era. So there's an example. It's, it's a very vivid example, but it's, it's true of all the sectors I look at, that it's not society's elites that are doing this work. It's society's elites that are benefiting from it, but uh, the work itself gets delegated out to people at the bottom of the, the social ladder. And so in this way, there is both income and, and wealth inequality in our country, but there's also, I argue, moral inequality. There are the people who are pushed into these low status professions where they are effectively dirtying their hands while others get to kind of sit back, be distant, not think about it. So if, if we turn to look to the, the focus you have in, in the book that opens the book on, on jails and prisons, I mean, I think even more than meat processing plants, jails and prisons are just famously and deliberately inaccessible in kind of paramilitary settings that um, have a sort of abhorrence of transparency. But you don't focus on on the system as a whole. You really zero in on the effects of the criminalization of mental health and the way that that plays itself out in, in the boom in incarceration of people with uh, mental health challenges, but then the dirty work that goes on of trying to work with them in these settings. What, what made you decide to focus specifically on, on the mental health aspect? That's a really important point. And the reason I focused on it, if we just go back very briefly to Everett Hughes. He heard, he heard that architect say, the Jews, they were a problem and it had to be settled somehow, right? So that, if we think of that phrase, well, the people with severe mental illnesses in the United States, this is a problem. Untreated mental illnesses, right? That we're, we're not treating out in society. Correct. This is, this is a social problem. In the 60s, there was a a very broad and impassioned movement to shut down a lot of asylums in this country uh, and state mental health hospitals that were said to be and, and, and clearly were providing inadequate treatment, sometimes perpetuating abuse and, and humiliation and, and, and indignities for, for the mentally ill. So there was this movement that arose and, and, you know, John F. Kennedy gets behind the idea of really creating community mental health centers that can offer more humane services in a more humane setting. But as I note, the funding for that never came through. In fact, by the time the deinstitutionalization movement has really sort of gathered force and succeeded, we're in the Reagan era. And we have an era of tax revolts and cutbacks on social spending. And as a consequence, we have seen a new set of institutions serve as the places where so many people with severe mental illnesses end up, and that's jails and prisons. And so again, to think of that you know, framework that Hughes posits, I think jails and prisons are solving a problem for society that people implicitly don't want to be taxed to solve in other ways. And so we end up having this population of, of people like Darren Rainey, who I write about in the first section of the book, who end up going most of their lives without treatment and cycling in and out of the criminal justice system because they're poor, because they have mental health issues, and because there's nowhere else for them to go. Yeah, I mean, if, if we 
talk a bit about the, the terrible, really terrible story of what happened to Darren Rainey. I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about the the woman that you profile at some length in in the book who was working as a you know sort of mental health practitioner? Though I mean, I think you say she was making twelve dollars an hour yeah. and and working for a, I think we could say infamous private prison corporation. But do you want to talk a little bit about about her experience and then the intersection with this terrible story of Darren Rainey? So I profile a woman named Harriet Kriskovsky, and Harriet gets a job at the Dade Correctional Institution, uh, which is located south of Miami. And she works in the mental health ward as a mental health aide. She's never worked in a prison before. She's a little bit afraid. And she's, she's a woman working in an all-male prison. She doesn't know what to expect, but she assumes that the guards are the good guys and the inmates um, are people she needs to be wary of, but at the same time, she is very serious about treatment and trying to help the guys in the mental health ward. But what she quickly comes to learn is that the mental health ward at this prison is not helping people, that guys are being locked in cells, single unit, single person cells, left there. Uh, She's finding people who are deteriorating just dramatically, uh, being left in, in their own feces, Unfortunately, these are not rare occurrences in America's jails and prisons. And worse than this, she starts hearing from some of them that they're being denied meals, that they're being mistreated. And when she reports this to her supervisor, her supervisor tells her, well, you know, our job is to get along with security. And uh, she sort of gets a lesson in something called dual loyalty, which is a concept I believe you've talked about on this program. But in a sense, She's not sure at that point who she's working for. Is she working for the guards and doing what they're supposed to, what they tell her to do? Or is she there to treat the patients entrusted to her care? Right. Is it, are, are they patients or are they inmates? Correct. And, and what she comes to realize, she actually writes an email complaining about some of the conditions in this mental health ward. And shortly thereafter, the guards start retaliating against her. They leave her alone in the rec yard. Uh, She's nearly assaulted on one occasion. And she gets this message, you know, don't defy us. This is our house. This is, we run this place. And she needs her job. She needs the paycheck. She's also physically vulnerable in this setting. And so she comes to, in a sense, avert her eyes to, as she puts it, to put it to me, the lesson we got was don't be a witness. Don't say anything if you see something that's really disturbing. Well, unfortunately, she sees something. She doesn't see it directly, but she learns. She comes to work one day and she learns that a, a prisoner named Darren Rainey has been taken to a shower and the night before and that he collapsed and died in that shower. And when she first hears this story, she tells the nurse, oh, so he had a heart attack or he slipped? And the nurse says, no, he was locked in this shower and left there in a shower where the water was 160 degrees. This is the temperature of tea water, you know, water used to steep tea, essentially left in a scalding shower. And we don't know if he fell because of the steam or because of the excruciating pain of the water itself, but he he falls and he dies a gruesome death. Uh, suffering burns on much of his body. And Harriet is in shock when she learns this. She's horrified, but she does not report this incident because she's afraid. 
because she has learned a lesson about what happens to people who do report. And nobody reports it, actually. No one on the mental health staff. And this is why I think it's an example of dirty work. Of course, offering to work in the mental health ward of a prison, you could argue is anything but dirty. It's a noble thing. It's a very difficult job, and we should laud those who do it. But the conditions under which it happens ends up putting people in morally compromising situations. This is an extreme example of that, but there are a lot of more mundane examples, right, of people who maybe see someone being put in solitary confinement who really shouldn't be there, but are they going to challenge the guard who did that? Are they going to step in and say something? Or they hear language that they think is, you know, going to trigger someone who's in the throes of a mental health crisis. Again, are, are they going to challenge that when it's, it's this very difficult environment to navigate? And so, I mean, I, I think it's your argument. I mean, what happened to Darren Rainey was an extreme example of the kind of violence that can happen, but it's not an aberration, right? In some ways, it is a product of this tacit societal decision to criminalize mental illness and then, and then underfund even any services you're offering behind bars. Absolutely. I think that if we really want to reckon with what happened to Rainey, we have to look at funding levels for mental health services. We have to look at mass incarceration and how a system was erected that effectively turned jails and prisons into these places where people with severe mental health issues are, are being concentrated. And of course, in many of these cases, you do have guards who are prone to being violent, but you also have a lot of guards who are overworked and underpaid and outnumbered. You know, very, many of the people who work as, as guards quit within a year. And so the system has these conditions that are increasingly violent. And what the guards who do stay in it do is they rely on force to enforce order. And so the abuses absolutely are systemic. They cannot simply be addressed by blaming a few rogue guards. And that's, I think, the convenient, if we think again about the dirty work thesis, you know, these are not rogue actors. Even if they did something unspeakable as they did at, at, at Dade, you know, I talk about how eight years later, in 2020, use of force incidents in the Florida prison system had gone dramatically up. And this was eight, eight years after what happened to Rainey took place. And so that's systemic. You know, that's telling you something is going on that doesn't have to do with just a few rogue actors, but has to, has to do with the conditions and the culture of these institutions. And that is, unfortunately, a reflection of what society tolerates. And then in, in terms of the moral injury that this inflicts on people doing the dirty work, I mean, there's this really terrible moment in the book when you, you say that Harriet, even after you know leaving uh, working behind bars, when she'd be drawing a bath for her children and put her hand in the water to check the temperature of it, would find herself um, thinking of Darren Rainey. I want listeners to just think about or get a get a picture of what Harriet was like when I first met her. And this, as you say, she had left Dade; she was no longer working there. But when I first met her she could barely speak about the experience of working there. And the other striking thing to me was that she was wearing a wig. And the reason she was wearing a wig is that the distress of working at Dade 
was so extreme that her hair fell out and took years to, to grow back. She experienced depression. She feels she experienced a form of PTSD. And the way she initially communicated to me what working there was like was by handing me this long, detailed narrative account of her experience that she'd written. And she called it her trauma narrative. And that's how I sort of got this sense that, oh, it's not just the Darren Rainies and the, and the incarcerated people who are suffering in this and who are injured. It's also the work, workforce, the staff, people who go in with good intentions and wind up morally injured because they feel complicit in a system that is cruel. Now, you mentioned that we've talked about dual loyalty on this podcast before, and we did that in an interview with Homer Venters, who I, I know you know, and who's the former chief medical officer for New York City jails. And a lot of the people that he mentored are working there now and are, in fact, speaking out, I think, quite bravely about the conditions at Rikers Island. And those are conditions that are present in jails across the country. It's not just a story about... Rikers Island, but I woke up this morning to a profile of Rachel Bedard in the New York Times, who is one of those correctional health doctors on Rikers, talking about the challenges of working there. She works with the oldest and sickest people at Rikers and talking about the challenge of trying to turn oppression into care, all right, and this this paradox. I'm wondering, do you think that, I mean, there's more exposure on this right now because of things being so bad, uh, this intensification of things at Rikers. But is this exposure of some of the strains of dirty work it coming out into the open? Is that helpful or hopeful in some ways, do you think? I think it could be. I wonder, you know, how sustained our attention will be. Rikers is actually a really important sort of story to think about in relationship to the whole idea of dirty work. Because one of the things it shows is that steps can be taken to mitigate how demeaning, dirtying, violent, injurious this kind of work is. Rikers was in crisis years ago. I talk about the report that was done about the culture of violence at Rikers. And a lot of people with really good intentions went into this after the horrors there were exposed and did improve things, right? The number of, of deaths at Rikers were, went down quite dramatically. I think that there was a concerted effort to really try to uh, improve things. And yet things have now gone back to a crisis point. I don't think anyone would deny that. And so on one level, that shows that dirty work is not something that's fixed in stone. It is subject to change from society, from government actors, from citizens, from doctors and and others who speak out. On the other hand, I think Rikers is also a cautionary tale in the sense that we have a structural situation that is a problem. And the structural situation is, is the one I referred to, you know, overcrowded prisons and jails, an inadequate mental health system, using these carceral institutions to warehouse a population that doesn't belong there. And if you combine all of that, in spite of whatever good intentions there may be from individuals here and there, you're going to continue to have problems. You're going to continue to have harm done to incarcerated people and harm done to the people who work in these institutions in a a sort of secondary way. 
Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that Rikers is kind of the ultimate dirty work location. I mean, in terms of saying that dirty work is best done, uh, you know, out of sight, out of mind. I mean, Rikers is a literal island. There's only one bridge to access it. It's, I think it's close to a mile long. Dermot Shea, the uh, New York police commissioner, recently in, a, recently in an interview said, we have the envy of what every city in the United States wants, an island where our jail is. That's, that is very aptly fits into the paradigm of, of dirty work that I try to lay out. And, you know, of course, in other parts of the country, they don't, they may not have an island, but they have a lot of rural towns and, and areas that, that few people pass through. And lo and behold, jails and prisons tend to be concentrated in more remote rural areas, often impoverished areas, as, as the Dade Correctional Institution is, and draws a workforce from those same communities. And it is effectively rendered invisible. All right, so in terms of understanding the distancing of dirty work and the way things need to be kept away from the good people, you write about this as a, perversely in a way, as a kind of civilizing process that takes place with the creation of of dirty work. And I just wanted to explore that concept of civilizing and dirty work with you for a minute. Absolutely. I take that idea from uh, a sociologist named Norbert Elias. He wrote this two-volume study called The Civilizing Process. And it's an enormous book, and it's actually mostly about table manners. And he's got these detailed descriptions of how, as society becomes civilized, things like blowing your nose is done in a different way. It's done more discreetly. Going to the bathroom, it has to be with a closed door in private. No one hears, no one sees. He and this is in the Middle Ages, right? This, this is in the, from the Middle Ages to the modern age. And what he's saying is, and he has this wonderful uh, phrase, he says, the civilizing process is about hiding disturbing events behind the scenes of social life. And what he means by disturbing events are, are again, sneezing, coughing, spitting, uh, going to the bathroom. He also talks about the slaughter of animals, that in the Middle Ages, the slaughtered carcass would be brought to the table. But by the time societies become civilized, it's done in the butcher's shop or you know, in the kitchen behind closed doors and brought out so that you don't see the blood and the reminder that this was a living thing. He says that as societies become more civilized, the threshold of repugnance rises. Now, Let's think about the criminal justice system, because what's really interesting is that although Elias does not mention jails and prisons once in this book, he has become an important theorist in contemporary criminology and in the study of sociology of punishment, because uh, David Garland and other scholars have said, well, wait a minute, look at the way we organize punishment today, right? We don't flog people. We don't have these sort of crude spectacles of punishment that existed in the Middle Ages, but we put them in administrative segregation, right? Behind the doors of a closed institution in a solitary cell that's completely hidden from view. And we seem to tolerate that, even though it's arguably no less cruel. The idea here is as long as violence and cruelty is hidden, 
privatized, made more discreet, it can go on in a civilized society. In many ways, it's even more likely to continue and go on because it's been hidden. And just to be clear, for Elias, I mean, civilizing, civilization tends to have a very positive connotation. That's not necessarily the way Elias is using it. He's not arguing this is some positive, inevitable development. Not at all. And and he, indeed, he was a student of Sigmund Freud. And what he's talking about is repression and the repression of what's disturbing and pushing it away. But he's talking about it not just at an individual level, but at a social level. And if we think about the impulse to hide and repress, we can see why civilization does not equate to progress, uh, to moral progress in this formulation. Even though I think some people do read Elias that way, I think they misread him um, as saying, you know, oh, things are just getting better. He's not saying that. In fact, he's warning us, I think, that they may well get in some ways more barbaric, but we won't see it that way. Yeah, you write in the book that the idea of dirty work, and that's work that by definition causes substantial harm, the idea that dirty work might be necessary is disturbing. I mean, not to put you on the spot, but have you thought about what a world without dirty work would look like? I mean, and and is it even possible? So what I mean by necessary is necessary to the existing social order. There's nothing necessary about the way we have organized and structured industrial slaughterhouses and factory farms. In fact, in much of Europe, there are things we do in this country that Europeans don't do. They don't, for example, spray chicken with chemicals to prevent infections and and unsafe chicken being sold in supermarkets because in Europe, the line speeds are slower and there's more government regulation to inspect the meat in other ways, because people don't want to eat meat that has been sprayed with chemicals, chlorine and other things they're, they're not sure are safe. But the line speeds being what they are, denying people bathroom breaks, none of that is really necessary. But it's necessary to the system as it exists today. Cheap meat that comes in those shrink wrap packages that are, look very clean, but that is produced under socially invisible conditions. That's the system we have. In a similar way with the prisons, there's nothing necessary about using jails and prisons, turning them into the largest mental health institutions in our society, which they are. Uh, This doesn't have to be the case. It was not always the case, right? So we can change it. Maybe we shouldn't allow the meat and poultry in our country to be hidden from view in the same way. I mean, Michael Pollan, the, the great chronicler of the American food system, you know, in one of his books, he talks about turning all the slaughterhouse, building them with glass rather than <laughs> with brick so that, that people could see what went on inside and sort of speculates that if that was done, everything would change. Maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. But I think at the very least, there is, a, for me, a problem with hiding all of this, with you know, concealing it, because our integrity is damaged as citizens, if we don't ever see the things, the harm that is being done in our name. I think that there's something fundamentally askew about that. Yeah, I mean, the beginnings of a solution, you know, might be simply 
exposure and, and, and trying to mitigate some of the hypocrisy that surrounds and sustains dirty work, which it seems to me is part of what your book is trying to do, right? Absolutely. And I think that, you know, the other thing I'm trying to do is to have people think a little bit about the folks who dirty their hands as something other than people they can easily judge, right? So if you hear Harriet's story and you don't know the details and you don't know the structural conditions, you just hear that this mental health aide heard about a man being, in a sense, boiled alive and murdered. She didn't report it. That's outrageous. You know, medical ethics requires that you do report it. But then if we look at what the actual conditions there were and what the constraints were, it becomes more complicated. It becomes grayer. And I think that the inequality of who does the dirty work is compounded by an inequality of blame. So the blame always falls on these, you know, bad apples within the system who did these awful things, and very rarely on the folks at the top who designed the system. They have power. The people in the bottom rungs don't have a lot of power. And so I would hope that people would think about the way that we too often, in a sense, allow the bad apple theory to substitute for deeper reflection about who is really accountable for this. Well, I think your book goes a long way towards, you know, I mean, doing that kind of refocusing effort. I, I found that after reading it, it's a little bit like someone has adjusted your prescription on your glasses mm -hmm. a little bit, and, and you just start to see things out there in the world a, li a little bit differently and enough, I think, to make a difference. So I just, I want to congratulate you on the work that you've done. And I want to thank you so much for being here today. It's just, uh, it, it's been a really illuminating conversation. Thank you so much. And I have to say, that's one of the nicest things someone has said about the book. Um, if I can think of, you know, I have pretty bad vision and uh, <laughs> I just actually got my glasses up, updated. But, um, you know, that's that's why the work needs to be done from my point of view to try to hopefully open people's eyes. Um, because I do think that as divided as this country has become, I think when people are actually confronted with some of the details of what is in this book, very few are just going to say, oh, I'm fine with that. To me, there is, you know, just a job to be done of getting us all to see a little more clearly, because I think that's where conversation can begin and conversation has to happen before we change anything. Well, here's to the power of conversation. And that was my conversation with author and journalist A.L. Press. His new book is Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America. For more information about A.L. and today's episode, click the link in your show notes or go to courtinnovation.org slash newthinking. For help with the episode, my thanks to Kelly Crichton. Today's episode was produced and edited by me. Samia Amin Mia is our Director of Design. Emma Dayton is our VP of Outreach. Our music is by Michael Aaron at QuiverNYC.com. And our show's founder is Rob Wolf. This has been New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.